Part One of My French Master by Elizabeth Gaskell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From Household Words, a Weekly Journal, Number One Hundred and Ninety Five, Seventeenth of December, eighteen fifty three. My French Master, in two chapters. Chapter the First. My father's house was in the country, seven miles away from the nearest town. He had been an officer in the navy, but as he had met with some accidents that would disable him from ever serving again, he gave up his commission and his half-pay. He had a small private fortune, and my mother had not been penniless, so he purchased a house and ten or twelve acres of land, and set himself up as an amateur farmer on a very small scale. My mother rejoiced over the very small scale of his operations, and when my father regretted, as he did very often, that no more land was to be purchased in the neighbourhood, I could see her setting herself a sum in her head. If on twelve acres he manages to lose a hundred pounds a year, what would be our loss on a hundred and fifty? But when my father was pushed hard on the subject of the money he spent in his sailor-like farming, he had one constant retreat. Think of the health and the pleasure we all of us take in the cultivation of the fields around us. It is something for us to do and to look forward to every day. And this was so true that as long as my father confined himself to these arguments, my mother left him unmolested. But to strangers he was still apt to enlarge on the returns his farm brought him in, and he had often to pull up in his statements when he caught the warning glance of my mother's eye, showing him that she was not so much absorbed in her own conversation as to be deaf to his voice. But as for the happiness that arose out of our mode of life, that was not to be calculated by tens or hundreds of pounds. There were only two of us, my sister and myself, and my mother undertook the greater part of our education. We helped her in her household cares during part of the morning, then came an old-fashioned routine of lessons, such as she herself had learnt when a girl. Goldsmith's History of England, Rowland's Ancient History, Lindley Murray's Grammar, and plenty of sewing and stitching. My mother used sometimes to sigh and wish that she could buy us a piano and teach us what little music she knew. But many of my dear father's habits were expensive, at least for a person possessed of no larger an income than he had. Besides the quiet and unsuspected drain of his agricultural pursuits, he was of a social turn, enjoying the dinners to which he was invited by his more affluent neighbours and especially delighted in returning them the compliments and giving them choice little entertainments, which would have been yet more frequent in their recurrence than they were. But we never were able to purchase the piano. It required a greater outlay of ready money than we ever possessed. I dare say we should have grown up ignorant of any language but our own if it had not been for my father's social habits, which led to our learning French in a very unexpected manner. He and my mother went to dine with General Ashburton, one of the forest rangers, and there they met with an emigrant gentleman, a Monsieur de Chalabre, who had escaped in a wonderful manner and at terrible peril to his life, 
and was consequently, in our small forest circle, a great lion and a worthy cause of a series of dinner parties. His first entertainer, General Ashburton, had known him in France under very different circumstances, and he was not prepared for the quiet and dignified request made by his guest one afternoon, after Monsieur de Chalabre had been about a fortnight in the forest, that the general would recommend him as a French teacher, if he could conscientiously do so. To the general's remonstrances, Monsieur de Chalabre smilingly replied, by an assurance that his assumption of his new occupation could only be for a short time, that the good cause would, must triumph. It was before the fatal January 21st, 1793, and then, still smiling, he strengthened his position by quoting innumerable instances out of the classics of heroes and patriots, generals and commanders, who had been reduced by fortune's frolics to adopt some occupation far below their original one. He closed his speech with informing the general that, relying upon his kindness in acting as referee, he had taken lodgings for a few months at a small farm which was in the centre of our forest circle of acquaintances. The general was too thoroughly a gentleman to say anything more than that he should be most happy to do whatever he could to forward Monsieur de Chalabre's plans. And as my father was the first person whom he met with after his conversation, it was announced to us, on the very evening of the day on which it had taken place, that we were forthwith to learn French. And I verily believe that, if my father could have persuaded my mother to join him, we should have formed a French class of father, mother, and two head of daughters, so touched had my father been by the general's account of Monsieur de Chalabre's present desires as compared with the higher state from which he had fallen. Accordingly, we were installed in the dignity of his first French pupils. My father was anxious that we should have a lesson every other day, ostensibly that we might get on all the more speedily, but really that he might have a larger quarterly bill to pay. At any rate, until Monsieur de Chalabre had more of his time occupied with instruction, but my mother gently interfered and calmed her husband down into two lessons a week, which was, she said, as much as we could manage. Those happy lessons! I remember them now, at the distance of more than fifty years. Our house was situated on the edge of the forest. Our fields were, in fact, cleared out of it. It was not good land for clover, but my father would always sow one particular field with clover seed, because my mother was so fond of the fragrant scent in her evening walks, and through this a footpath ran which led into the forest. A quarter of a mile beyond, a walk on the soft, fine, springy turf, and under the long, low branches of the beech trees, and we arrived at the old red brick farm where Monsieur de Chalabre was lodging. Not that we went there to take our lessons. That would have been an offence to his spirit of politeness. But as my father and mother were his nearest neighbours, there was a constant interchange of small messages and notes, which we little girls were only too happy to take to our dear Monsieur Chalabre. Moreover, if our lessons with my mother were ended pretty early, she would say, You have been good girls. Now, 
you may run to the high point in the clover field and see if Monsieur de Chalabre is coming. And if he is, you may walk with him, but take care and give him the cleanest part of the path, for you know he does not like to dirty his boots. This was all very well in theory, but like many theories, the difficulty was to put it in practice. If we slipped to the side of the path where the water lay longest, he bowed and retreated behind us to a still wetter place, leaving the clean part to us. Yet, when we got home, his polished boots would be without a speck, while our shoes were covered with mud. Another little ceremony which we had to get accustomed to was his habit of taking off his hat as we approached, and walking by us, holding it in his hand. To be sure, he wore a wig, delicately powdered, frizzed, and tied in a queue behind, but we had always a feeling that he would catch cold, and that he was doing us too great an honour, and that he did not know how old, or rather how young we were, until one day we saw him, far away from our house, hand a countrywoman over a stile with the same kind of dainty courteous politeness, lifting her basket of eggs over first, and then, taking up the silk-lined lapel of his coat, he spread it on the palm of his hand for her to rest her fingers upon, instead of which she took his small white hand in her plump vigorous gripe and lent her full weight upon him. He carried her basket for her as far as their roads lay together, and from that time we were less shy in receiving his courtesies, perceiving that he considered them as deference due to our sex, however old or young or rich or poor. So, as I said, we came down from the clover field in rather a stately manner, and through the wicket gate that opened into our garden, which was as rich in its sense of varied kinds as the clover field had been in its one pure fragrance. My mother would meet us here, and somehow our life was passed as much out of doors as indoors, both winter and summer. We seemed to have our French lessons more frequently in the garden than in the house, for there was a sort of arbour on the lawn near the drawing-room window, to which we always found it easy to carry a table and chairs, and all the rest of the lesson paraphernalia, if my mother did not prohibit a lesson al fresco. Monsieur de Chalabre wore as a sort of mourning costume, a coat, waistcoat and breeches, all made of a kind of coarse grey cloth which he had bought in the neighbourhood. His three-cornered hat was brushed to a nicety, his wig sat as no one else's did, my father's was always awry, and the only thing wanting to his costume when he came was a flower. Sometimes I fancied he purposely omitted gathering one of the roses that clustered up the farmhouse in which he lodged, in order to afford my mother the pleasure of culling her choicest carnations and roses to make him up his nosegay or posy, as he liked to call it. He had picked up that pretty country word and adopted it as an especial favourite, dwelling on the first syllable with all the languid softness of an Italian accent. Many a time have Mary and I tried to say it like him. We did so admire his way of speaking. Once seated round the table, whether in the house or out of it, we were bound to attend to our lessons, and somehow he made us perceive that it was a part of the same chivalrous code that made him so helpful to the helpless 
to enforce the slightest claim of duty to the full. No half-prepared lessons for him. The patience and the resource with which he illustrated and enforced every precept. The untiring gentleness with which he made our stubborn English tongues pronounce and mispronounce and repronounce certain words. Above all, the sweetness of temper which never varied were such as I have never seen equalled. If we wondered at these qualities when we were children, how much greater has been our surprise at their existence since we have been grown up and have learnt that, until his emigration, he was a man of rapid and impulsive action, with the imperfect education implied in the circumstance that at fifteen he was a sous-lieutenant in the Queen's regiment, and must, consequently, have had to apply himself hard and conscientiously to master the language which he had in after-life to teach. Twice we had holidays to suit his sad convenience. Holidays with us were not at Christmas and Midsummer, Easter and Michaelmas. If my mother was unusually busy, we had what we called a holiday, though in reality it involved harder work than our regular lessons. But we fetched and carried and ran errands and became rosy and dusty and sang merry songs in the gaiety of our hearts. If the day was remarkably fine, my dear father, whose spirits were rather apt to vary with the weather, would come bursting in with his bright, kind, bronzed face and carry the day by storm with my mother. It was a shame to coop such young things up in a house, he would say, when every other young animal was frolicking in the air and sunshine. Grammar, what was that but the art of arranging words? And he never knew a woman but could do that fast enough. Geography, he would undertake to teach us more geography in one winter evening, telling us of the countries where he had been, with just a map before him, than we could learn in ten years with that stupid book all full of hard words. As for the French, why, that must be learnt, for he should not like Monsieur de Chalabre to think we slighted the lessons he took so much pains to give us. But surely we could get up the earlier to learn our French. We promised by acclamation, and my mother, sometimes smilingly, sometimes reluctantly, was always compelled to yield. And these were the usual occasions for our holidays but twice we had a fortnight's entire cessation of French lessons, once in January and once in October, nor did we even see our dear French master during those periods. We went several times to the top of the clover field to search the dark green outskirts of the forest with our busy eyes, and if we could have seen his figure in that shade, I am sure we should have scampered to him, forgetful of the prohibition which made the forest forbidden ground. But we did not see him. It was the fashion in those days to keep children much less informed than they are now on the subjects which interest their parents. A sort of hieroglyphic or cipher talk was used in order to conceal the meaning of much that was said if children were present. My mother was a proficient in this way of talking, and took, we fancied, a certain pleasure in perplexing my father by inventing a new cipher, as it were, every day. For instance, for some time I was called Marsha, because I was very tall of my age. 
and just as my father had begun to understand the name, and it must be owned, a good while after I had learned to prick up my ears whenever Marcia was named, my mother suddenly changed me into the buttress, from the habits I had acquired of leaning my languid length against a wall. I saw my father's perplexity about this buttress for some days, and could have helped him out of it, but I durst not. And so, when the unfortunate Louis the Sixteenth was executed, the news was too terrible to be put into plain English, and too terrible also to be made known to us children. Nor could we at once find the clue to the cipher in which it was spoken about. We heard about the iris being blown down, and saw my father's honest, loyal excitement about it, and the quiet reserve which always betokened some secret grief on my mother's part. We had no French lessons, and somehow the poor, battered, storm-torn Iris was to blame for this. It was many weeks after this before we knew the full reason of Monsieur de Chalabre's deep depression when he again came amongst us, why he shook his head when my mother timidly offered him some snowdrops on that first morning on which we began lessons again, why he wore the deep mourning of that day, when all of the dress that could be black was black, and the white muslin frills and ruffles were unstarched and limp, as if to bespeak the very abandonment of grief. We knew well enough the meaning of the next hieroglyphic announcement. The wicked, cruel boys had broken off the white lily's head. That beautiful queen, whose portrait had once been shown to us, with her blue eyes and her fair, resolute look, her profusion of lightly powdered hair, her white neck adorned with strings of pearls. We could have cried if we had dared when we heard the transparent, mysterious words. We did cry at night, sitting up in bed, with our arms around each other's necks, and vowing, in our weak, passionate, childish way, that if we lived long enough, that lady's death avenged should be. No one who cannot remember that time can tell the shudder of horror that thrilled through the country at hearing of this last execution. At the moment, there was no time for any consideration of the silent horrors endured for centuries by the people who at length rose in their madness against their rulers. This last blow changed our dear Monsieur de Chalabre. I never saw him again in quite the same gaiety of heart as before this time. There seemed to be tears very close behind his smiles for ever after. My father went to see him when he had been about a week absent from us. No reason given, for did not we, did not everyone know the horror the son had looked upon? As soon as my father had gone, my mother gave it in charge to us to make the dressing-room belonging to our guest-chamber as much like a sitting-room as possible. My father hoped to bring back Monsieur de Chalabre for a visit to us, but he would probably like to be a good deal alone, and we might move any article of furniture we liked if we only thought it would make him comfortable. I believe General Ashburton had been on a somewhat similar errand to my father's before, but he had failed. My father gained his point, as I afterwards learnt, in a very unconscious and characteristic manner. He had urged his invitation on Monsieur de Chalabre, 
and received such a decided negative that he was hopeless and quitted the subject. Then Monsieur de Chalabre began to relieve his heart by telling him all the details. My father held his breath to listen. At last his honest heart could contain itself no longer, and the tears ran down his face. His unaffected sympathy touched Monsieur de Chalabre inexpressibly, and in an hour after we saw our dear French master coming down the Cloverfield slope, leaning on my father's arm, which he had involuntarily offered as a support to one in trouble, although he was slightly lame, and ten or fifteen years older than Monsieur de Chalabre. For a year after that time, Monsieur de Chalabre never wore any flowers, and after that, to the day of his death, no gay or coloured rose or carnation could tempt him. We secretly observed his taste, and always took care to bring him white flowers for his posy. I noticed, too, that on his left arm, under his coat-sleeve, sleeves were made very open then, he always wore a small band of black crepe. He lived to be eighty-one, but he had the black crepe band on when he died. Monsieur de Chalabre was a favourite in all the forest circle. He was a great acquisition to the sociable dinner-parties that were perpetually going on, and though some of the families piqued themselves on being aristocratic and turned up their noses at anyone who had been engaged in trade, however largely, Monsieur de Chalabre, in right of his good blood, his loyalty, his daring, pre-chevalier actions, was ever an honoured guest. He took his poverty and the simple habits it enforced, so naturally and gaily, as a mere trifling accident of his life, about which neither concealment nor shame could be necessary, that the very servants, often so much more pseudo-aristocratic than their masters, loved and respected the French gentleman, who perhaps came to teach in the mornings and in the evenings, made his appearance dressed with dainty neatness as a dinner guest. He came, lightly prancing through the forest mire, and in our little hall, at any rate, he would pull out a neat, minute case, containing a blacking-brush and blacking, and repolish his boots, speaking gaily in his broken English to the footman all the time. That blacking-case was his own making. He had a genius for using his fingers. After our lessons were over, he relaxed into the familiar house-friend, the merry playfellow. We lived far from any carpenter or joiner. If a lock was out of order, Monsieur de Chalabre made it right for us. If any box was wanted, his ingenious fingers had made it before our lesson day. He turned silk winders for my mother, made a set of chessmen for my father, carved an elegant watch-case out of a rough beef-bone, dressed up little cork dolls for us. In short, as he said, his heart would have been broken but for his joiner's tools. Nor were his ingenious gifts employed for us alone. The farmer's wife where he lodged had numerous contrivances in her house which he had made. One particularly which I remember was a pasteboard, made after a French pattern which would not slip about on a dresser, as he had observed her English pasteboard do. Susan, the ruddy farmer's daughter, had her work-box, too, to show us, 
and her cousin lover had a wonderful stick with an extraordinary demon head carved upon it, all by Monsieur de Chalabre. Farmer, farmer's wife, Susan, Robert, and all were full of his praises. We grew from children into girls, from girls into women, and still Monsieur de Chalabre taught on in the forest. Still he was beloved and honoured. Still no dinner party within five miles was thought complete without him, and ten miles distance strove to offer him a bed sooner than miss his company. The pretty merry Susan of sixteen had been jilted by the faithless Robert, and was now a comely, demure damsel of thirty-one or two, still waiting upon Monsieur Chalabre, and still constant in respectfully singing his praises. My own poor mother was dead. My sister was engaged to be married to a young lieutenant who was with his ship in the Mediterranean. My father was as youthful as ever in heart, and indeed in many of his ways. Only his hair was quite white, and the old lameness was more frequently troublesome than it had been. An uncle of his had left him a considerable fortune, so he farmed away to his heart's content and lost an annual sum of money with the best grace and the lightest heart in the world. There were not even the gentle reproaches of my mother's eyes to be dreaded now. Things were in this state when the peace of 1814 was declared. We had heard so many and such contradictory rumours that we were inclined to doubt even the Gazette at last, and were discussing probabilities with some vehemence. When Monsieur de Chalabre entered the room, unannounced and breathless. My friends, give me joy, he said. The Bourbon. He could not go on. His features, nay, his very fingers, worked with agitation, but he could not speak. My father hastened to relieve him. We have heard the good news. You see, girls, it is quite true this time. I do congratulate you, my dear friend. I am glad and he seized Monsieur de Chalabre's hand in his own hearty gripe, and brought the nervous agitation of the latter to a close by unconsciously administering a pretty severe dose of wholesome pain. I go to London. I go straight this afternoon to see my sovereign. My sovereign holds a court tomorrow at Grion Hotel. I go to him. I go to pay my devoir. I put on my uniform of garde du corps which I have laid by these many years. A little old, a little worm-eaten, but never mind. They have been seen by Marie Antoinette, which gives them a grasp for ever. He walked about the room in a nervous, hurried way. There was something on his mind, and we signed to my father to be silent for a moment or two, and let it come out. No, said Monsieur de Chalabre, after a moment's pause. I cannot say adieu for I shall return to say, dear friends, my adieu. I did come a poor emigrant. Noble Englishmen took me for their friend and welcomed me to their houses. Chalabre is one large mansion, and my English friends will not forsake me. They will come and see me in my own country, and for their sakes not an English beggar shall pass the doors of Chalabre without being warmed and clothed and fed. I will not say adieu. I go now, but for two days. End of chapter 1